kind of just to go off the start, um, you had mentioned that your father had died when you were young. Yes. Yes, I was five when he passed away in Florida. And um, I don't know if you want me to talk about that because I have one big memory of him. But like I said, um, you know, if you want me to go into that or not. Oh, and re- let me remind you mm-hmm. or tell you, I can talk about myself all day long. <laughs> See? Okay, you got to keep me focused, <laughs> you know, just, you know, because I, I have so much I can talk about. So um, just let me know how you want to do that if you want to go. Okay, that's enough. <laughs> but basically, just kind of like go, you can go through like your childhood and everything. Because like I lost my dad, but I was 15 at the time. So, you know, I kind of um, somewhat relate on that level. And I know you mentioned that you were adopted not too long, a couple yeah. years later. And that was just your mom remarrying. Yes. Okay. Yes, and I had a brother and a sister, both older than than me. So, um, you know, it was it was hard at first, you know, to, you know, who, repl- who's replacing me? And then he and I were the best ever. He was he was my daddy. You know, he was the best thing I could ever have during my life. So it all worked out well. That's good. So, what was the memory you were talking about? <clears throat> I remember when I was five, we lived in Miami. And we had a little—I won't—we had a little, um, little house with terrazzo flooring. And every evening, my daddy would. Now I'm five, and this is like one or two memories I have. I remember standing in the window, um, looking out, waiting for daddy. And when he came home, he'd get a cig—I mean, his cigar. We'd sit next to each other. His—you know—he had a big chair, and I had my seat. We played Chinese checkers. And every night we did that. And every night he cheated, so I won. <laughs> and I was just like, whoa. And I remember a couple, you know, every night we did that. And then a couple of nights I'm standing there and he never came home. And I didn't understand. And then Mama, you know, what she was going through, she finally said that, you know, Daddy was up in heaven with Grandpa. And, of course, I'm like, well, I want to go too. And, mm-hmm. you know, and then he never came home. And, and the three of us, that, I mean, the four of us, that was our life. You know, this was the first time that my life had changed and I had to um, acknowledge it and say, okay, you know, this is the new normal. This is what life's going to be like. And then all I've been through, it's like, okay, (laughs) this is the new normal. And, you know, so I think that was a powerful feeling for me. Mm -hmm. The first time I knew I had to, um, I had to be, life was going to be different. And I just remember so much playing um, Chinese checkers and my feet on the terrazzo and, you know, the fans and everything. It's just a great little memory in the living room. Because yeah. <clears throat> I noticed, too, because you had got what, lupus at 13. Yes. Yes, I was in sixth grade, and it was toward the end of the year, and I was always tired and didn't want to play a PE or anything and, I, and had a low-grade fever. So Mama took me to my pediatrician, and also I had the um spot the red spots on my cheeks, the um you know, uh rash. And so the doctor looked at me and knew I was sick, but you know, back in those age and they had no idea um what it was. So he sent me down to Jackson Memorial Hospital, which I ended up staying that day for three months in the hospital. because um, they really didn't know what I had. And um, lupus was, was systemic lupus, erythematosus. Mm-hmm. Systemic lupus is the lupus that attacks your organs. 
as opposed to the regular lupus that's in your bloodstream. So I was in the hospital for three months, and they kind of diagnosed me with the lupus, and it had settled in my kidney, and um, they did a biopsy, and I was going to have to have my kidney removed the next next day. And I won't go into all this. I'll just let you know that um, my parents were Cuban, and... Um, I had a big prayer section in my room that night with a bunch of aunts and uncles that I couldn't understand and Pentecostal. Mm-hmm. And the next morning when they were going to prep me for um, my surgery, um, I kind of fought it. And mom, of course, was in the room with me. And so they tested my kidney again and it was working. So that was one miracle that I... Um, you know, I, I count and, you know, I'm not a real religious person, but, you know, obviously God's in my life a lot. <laughs> so, um, so at that point they told my mama and daddy, I probably have a year to live because I was so sick. They didn't know how to help me, what medication. So they sent me home and a Cuban doctor from Cuba offered, um, experimental chemo to my parents and said, you know, I'd like to try it on them. And they're like, anything, you know, please, you can help my baby. So I took her chemotherapy. I lost all my hair. I was so sick. I stayed home my seventh grade from school. I had a teacher that came in, and I was just sick the whole year. It was terrible. So um, that now, that year became, okay, this is my life. This is what I'm going to live with the rest of my life. Um, toward the end of the year, I asked mom and daddy to please take me outside. Let me go. So I got dressed for church. That was where they let me go. And my pretty scarf went to church, had ice cream. And less than two weeks later, I came down with shingles. And it was all over my side of my face and my neck and you know it just it just it wasn't fair you know it just wasn't fair so all that pain and everything I was going through I didn't want it to be my normal I wasn't I wasn't going to accept it this time this was just you know I didn't want this anymore so um I got to go the next year eighth grade I went to went to school and in high school no one knew me because I had been home and no one really went to the middle school I went to. So um, I joined theater as a freshman because I couldn't do physical um, um, anything to, um, that possibly could have brought back the lupus. They, you know, at that point, they weren't sure what anything did. And I joined theater. And it was the best thing I ever did. <clears throat> I'm not going to get sappy here because I was anybody but that sick kid in seventh grade and I made the best friends ever and it just totally took me out of my scared sick shell that I had lived in mm-hmm. and I met I met my husband that um, I didn't know then we just were best friends and we married in 89 and then Susie White was also in my theater and she's the one that helped me join Kayo. She's the one that she talked to the other sisters, and they agreed to let me join Kaya. So that's why, you know, I bring her name up. Um, so that was very important to me, too. Wonderful friends. Yeah, it's crazy, like, just everything you've been through. And like you said, it's basically just young into your teenage years, how much trouble you had. And then 
then you go, you know, there and then have the issue. Because you started, what, the fall of 76? Yes, into Florida State. And I chose Florida State because um, I, uh, that's as far as I could get away from Miami and still get the in-state tuition. (laughs) Mama was very protective of me, you know, because of what we went through. I remember I was uh, allergic to the sun in Fort Lauderdale. We had moved to Fort Lauderdale at that point where I went to high school. She used to walk behind me with an umbrella. Whenever I went out with my friends or something, she'd be, Running behind me with an umbrella because I wasn't supposed to get any sun because that could activate the lupus, you know. So Florida State was a choice I really <laughs> had to make. And, of course, friends from high school went there, too. But that was my big, I have to go to Florida State. It's far away. <laughs> so basically, with everything was kind of normal once you started college and rolling. Yes. that. Yes, my um, chemo had gone into remission. Um, the therapy that they gave me was very strong, and it, it tamed the lupus, so I wasn't having any issues. I always had, and I still do, the joints, and I'm always tired and the aches and everything. And when I get blood tests for the lupus, it's like really small and mostly dormant, but mm-hmm. there's traces of it still. So when I went to college, I loved it as a freshman. Um You know, I lived in a dormitory that was all women, mama, you know, insisted. So um, I I lived there. And then when I went through Rush, which I don't know if you want me to explain what Rush is, because a lot of of people don't know um, as you're, you know, when you join college, you get to um, get all dressed up and go to different sororities that you're interested in, maybe five. For the week, you pick five. And the next day, they uh, sororities kind of say, okay, we don't want Kathy. So now I had four to go through the next day. And it whittled down until you have one or two sororities that would like to invite you back. And in my case, it was Kayo that invited me back. So um, that's how I got into Kayo, of course, I didn't know that Susie was on the other side with the sisters, you know, going, oh, she'd be great. We need to bring her in, you know. And here I thought, oh, I impressed everybody, you know, in 10 minutes. So uh, that was my Susie. She did. She did a lot. And Susie White in all the photos was the one standing and looking out the window above the sorority um, the 661 sorority number, sorority house. Mm-hmm. She's up there opening the window shade a little bit and looking out. Okay. I and how, that. yeah, that was my Susie White. So, um, you know, that's, she's a big part of me, but, um, high school and theater is where she comes from. Are you still friends with her too, like this day or anything? Well, a couple years after, um, after the attack, maybe three years, uh, we we had gone, a group of us had gone to Disney World, and she had gone on Space Mountain, a big um, roller coaster ride, mm-hmm. and she got off and had an aneurysm and died right there oh. on, the, on the thing. So um, that was traumatic, of course. So um, we took her back, and she was in Fort Lauderdale, and I remember... Um, I don't know if you want to get into this now, but just uh, to, just to let you know, I'm not in touch with her because she did pass um, okay. shortly after. Yeah, that's, that's a tough, tough loss, like I said, with everything uh, else going on. But 
going back to so you moved into there in fall of 77 correct yes yes i was in the dormitory and um at the end of the year um you know uh after um the semester started my parents thought it was so much safer for me to live in the sorority house than in a dormitory so in the spring of 77 it was determined I would move in in the fall into the Cayo house. And I did and um, had to decorate my room. My roommate was Karen. And I can't imagine, I'm sorry, the angst my parents must have gone through that me in the sorority. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry. Oh, and then what happened. And I just can't, we never talked about it. I'm sorry. But I can't imagine how a parent putting them somewhere that, you know, Monday went. I'm sorry, I'm not going to be like this. I won't be sad. But, um, so, um, that's how in the, um, fall of 77, I ended up in Chi Omega's, um, and living in the house. And of course, um, December came. I remember we were, um, going to decorate our room and mom and I went shopping and um, I wanted a bedspread and she and I could not agree on a bedspread but it was going to be my bedspread and uh, we finally found one it was beautiful it was a twin bed we lived I had and it was white with flowers and it was just a beautiful bedspread so that's you know part of the room when we decorated and that bedspread bedspread comes in two the story later on after I was attacked, it kind of falls into the story a little bit. Uh, I was a, a sophomore in the uh, summer. I'm sorry, January of 78. I was a sophomore. I was in interior design at that point was my major. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, there was Margaret and Lisa who had passed away. And um so that's, that's kind of where that was. I think I jumped around a little bit, but I had um, interior design was going to be my major, except when I first, um, in 76, when I first had to pick uh, classes to take, and I had my elective, I remember I took archaeology, because I thought, oh, you know, that's just great, and we went on a dig, and I remember I broke a couple of my uh, fake fingernails, mm-hmm. and I said, whoa, this is just like too physical for me, <laughs> I can't do this anymore, and that was the last time I was going to be an archaeologist, and then that's when I went into internal design, it was a lot lot safer, <laughs> no nails to be broken. So when, like, when all that, you know, happened, like... You know, when Bundy escaped and everything and went to Florida, had you, like, because I was born in 89, so I, but did the news, like, travel like that? Yeah. Like, did you guys know that he had escaped, you know, all the way from across the United States and all that? I had no idea who Ted Bundy was. As far as uh, King Casares, who was the sheriff during all this time, you know, he was, you know, he, he didn't know the computers weren't linked. And, um, as I was told by, actually, I saw Ken last year. It was amazing after 40 years to see Ken Casares because he had been so 
nice to my family and everything he was doing with Bundy. And he always would keep up with my parents and give us, you know, information. And that was, he was just, you know, an angel to me. Um, and I finally got to meet him last year again after 40 years. But we didn't, I mean, I was in, you know, having toga parties and, <laughs> and all this stuff. It was like, can you? So no, I, I didn't know anything about him. And, and actually Ken didn't know it until, um, out west sent him some information and said, you know, your guy could be Ted Bundy. And he's like, who? <laughs> so, um, it was, no, it did not. It wasn't, um, yeah, it wasn't connecting. I know like nowadays, you know, as well as computers as much as it is like social media, if some, something happens, you know, it's on social media, everybody's sharing it. Like it travels. Oh, yeah. It travels fast. Yeah. Um, you know, it's amazing how if it had been that fast, you know, maybe a uh, little Kimberly Leach down in um, Lake City wouldn't have been killed because, you know, you know, nothing about Bundy was anywhere in Florida State because, you know, it's just so far away and no, no, you know, no knowledge. But like you said, it would be, you know, would be all over the place now. Yeah, people would be looking for him and, and he might not even made it to Florida. Yeah, that's true. And I heard, um, I should ask Ken this, I probably will. Um, I heard he went to Florida because he knew there was a death penalty. And I don't see how that is true. I've heard that uh, over the years a lot, but I don't see how that could be true because he was running out of the state in Pensacola when he was caught, you know, when he was stopped. So that's just interesting. I'll have to check that for myself, but, um, I think he came here because, you know, of Florida because it was as far, you know, as he could get at that point. And kind of just be still like be unheard of because nobody knew nothing. So. Yes, yes. And he was so, his psyche, I've read books on him, Bruce, that I want to know him on the other side. I understand the deviant sexual, you know, monster, but I, I needed to know for me the other side of him. Um, how, how he worked, how he thought, and he was so manipulative. There wasn't anything to know because it was all made up the way he acted and what he did. Um, but his deviant behavior, you know, has, has been studied a lot. So mm -hmm. it was important that for me that, um, I did know that. And I read several books and I have a couple. The first one was Anne Rule, The Stranger Beside Me. She had been to, um, the actual trials in Miami. She had been in the, in the, uh, gallery the whole time. And that inspired her to write her book. And, um, over the years I've been in contact with her. She passed recently, but, um, that was cool. You know, this little, I'm, I have this new, uh, group of friends and it's the true crime genre. <laughs> You know, who would have known? <laughs> that would be my, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't involved or even thought about true crime until I was attacked by Ted Bundy. You know, now it's like they're my people now. <laughs> so, um, it's kind of ironic to me that, um, how things progress and, mm -hmm. you know, that's, that's how I got involved in, in learning more about him. Which, uh, can you kind of go, which I know you, I've seen a lot of stuff on you. Like, can you go into, that night when all of that went down and like kind of how like just the atmosphere felt afterwards like you said you didn't know who it was like right what was the whole thing of how it all went 
um, you, um, I think the day before the 14th that I can give you some background information and that might help bring it into focus if you'd like that or if you yeah. just want me to go into the plane attack, I can do I'm that. Okay. Um, it was a happy day. I remember getting up and I was going to go to a wedding. I had joined a little chapel at um, Florida State. And it was small. It was just a group of kids and it was a place to hang out. And there was a couple that were going to get married there. So I remember the 14th, we got dressed and ready to go. And it was inside ceremony and then outside on the lawn. And it was cold and misty and rainy when we got up. And I remember, God, this is so unfair. You know, they were having their wedding and the reception. It, you know, it, it was beautiful out. And I swear, after the wedding and we went outside, it was so cold, but it was clear. And it was just, it was just a wonderful time to be happy and be with friends. And, um, you know, life doesn't get any better mm-hmm. than that when I was at school. Um, so after the wedding, we were all going to go out and go movie or something. The chapel was maybe five blocks from the sorority. So I walked and I went back to the sorority to change and everything to go out. And I remember the when I walked into the uh, front foyer, there were the sorority sisters there just talking and had gone shopping and going to go in a, you know, out with their dates and, you know, chitter chatter. And I got involved in all that just standing there at the front door. Um, so I said, well, I'm going to go upstairs and study because I, I don't want to go out after all. Mm-hmm. So um, that's how I decided to be home that night. Um, and I went up into my room, and I, I kind of would like to describe what my room looked like because I want to take the people with me because mm-hmm. each time I tell the story and I close my eyes, I'm physically walking, you know, um, through the room. And um, if you want, I can describe what the room looked like at that point. Um, Okay. Um, We were on the second floor, and I was the second room on the left. The first room on the left was Margaret Bowman's. Of course, she was the first girl that was attacked and killed. Right across the hall from her, it was a thin, narrow um, hallway, like a dormitory, and our rooms were no bigger than a dorm room. Um, so right across the hall was Lisa's room, and Bundy just walked across the hall, and the doors were open, and he um, obviously attacked Lisa and and did all the things he did to her. And then he walked across the hall, and we were next to Margaret's room. Our door was unlocked. And he walked right into the room. Um, one thing about the door being unlocked, I used to say, shouldn't we lock our door at night to my roommate? And she goes, why? Are you afraid of your sisters or something? I'm like, nah, so, you know, but, you know, seeing what happened, you know. Anyway, so our room was unlocked, our door. And when he walked in our room, it was kind of long and narrow. And on each side of the room, it was kind of mirrored. We had the same, you know, the same thing on each side. And he walked in, and on each side of the door, we had our dresser, and then our closet, then our desk that followed down the wall. And at the end of the desk was my footboard to my twin bed, and the headboard was against the back wall. The carpet was gold, and the furniture was dark brown 
and the back of the room was a full bank, a full wall of uh, windows. And those windows, our, our view was to the back of the sorority where the driveway was. Mm-hmm. And that was, that's where, um, we looked out, but we always left our curtains open because, um, we hung rod, you know, plant rods, plants on the rods. So, um, our curtains were always open. It was, you know, during the day it was beautiful and bright. So, um, that's what my room looked like. And so I went upstairs to study and I sat down on my beautiful bedspread and started studying for a test. Karen, my roommate, was also in her, in the room, sitting against the wall, um, back wall where her headboard was. We were studying to about, I'll say, 1230 or so. We decided to go to bed. We turned off the lights. So we're going to bed. Of course, our curtains are wide open and fell asleep. I'm a good sleeper. So kind of fell asleep right away. And I don't remember the time because I didn't have a clock in front, but I heard our, our bedroom door kind of swish open and kind of hit the wall as it did. And our yellow carpet, I could hear it swish open. And I woke up a little bit because of that little noise, but you know, whatever at that point. Mm-hmm. Between, I forgot to say, between our two twin beds was a little foot locker, a little, um, you know, lock that we um, had um, our books and stuff on. And that was right between our twin beds, with which left about three or four feet from the um, trunk to each bed. It was, you know, a small, small room. So I heard the door open, woke me up a little bit. This person tripped on that little trunk because the room was so tight. And when that happened, it, it woke me up enough to squint my eyes and, you know, what's that noise? And as I lay there looking and focusing, I see a shadow, a silhouette mm-hmm. of someone standing right next to my bed. And as I'm focusing more, I see him raise up his right hand and, and I, re- I couldn't really tell. I remember his arm was long. You know, in a split second, you get these images of things. And um, and he brought that down on my face. And when he struck me, it wasn't, you know, Bruce, it didn't even, it didn't, I don't want to say it didn't hurt. It felt like a thud. It wasn't like something you would expect to happen. But with that first blow, he shattered my jaw in three places. I uh, cut he, the wood, um, cut my cheek wide open and from the corner of my mouth to my ear. And I had almost bit my tongue off and I had other, other, um, lacerations on my face and it actually hit my, um, my shoulder. So I kind of had, um, my shoulder was, um, beat up a bit. Uh, so that was, that was the first thing that happened, and I passed out. And then I remember hearing Karen moving around, and this person went to the other side of the room, which was, you know, from the trunk to her bed was three or four feet. Mm-hmm. He basically 
turned around and Karen woke up hearing this noise and he went over to her side again to strike her and she drew her arm up over her face knowing it was going to happen and he broke his arm her arm when he hit her and um cut her face and I uh, broke her jaw and so she passed out and I started waking up again and moving and as we know now Ted Bundy didn't leave any victims alive at that point we didn't know who it was but this person wasn't going to let everyone anyone live he was going to kill his victims so he came back to my side of the room and I'm cringed in a little ball and I'm laying on my left side and he had, had hit my right side cringing and and waiting for the next next blow and this all seemed slow motion but it actually was you know it happened quickly anyway a light shone up in our room and it had been a car coming into the back parking lot and the car light shone up in our room and i remember as i cringe i could see the light in our room i could see it illuminated a bit i opened my eyes and this person was uh, a lot clearer to me now it was more of a silhouette i could tell it was an actual person and he was like not dancing but going foot to foot and kind of really antsy and everything and he turned around and ran out the door and i'm cringe cuz i know he's coming back and all the beating had stopped while the room was light and then the room got dark again and you know i i of course cringe in a ball and the anticipation of the next blow but at this point my face and everything hurt so bad it was just it was just it was horrible and that's what i remember most is you know the um the knives and sticks yeah i just you know anything you could think of that sharp in my face i could feel but um so that's how he left the sorority house that night um and ran out the door and the killing stopped i think if that light had not shown up into our room he he either thought they saw him or i saw him well enough that he was so antsy and so spooked he ran out the front door and um i think that saved a lot of lives that night from the other girls down the hall in the sorority so you think he actually would have went to every every room and i think so he was he had not killed um since he left the uh west coast and went to florida he hadn't attacked anybody and it was a very long time for ted bundy in his you know mental deviant uh everything you can think of that was a long time for him so he entered the sorority house through the back door actually which the lock was broken and he had seen the girls just walking in and there was a pile of firewood that's what he hit us with was a a piece of oak firewood and that's how he came to the house carrying that and he walked up the stairs to the second floor and Margaret's room was first and that's how he was going down the hall and I do believe if that light hadn't shown and he had been spooked he could have he had killed a lot of people that night cuz I don't know what else would have you know made him leave even if someone woke up and saw him he would you know have knocked him out and mm-hmm. so I think you know a lot of girls were saved that night because of that light
I know a lot of people say, like, with the Florida, like, with that, and then just with Kimberly and all that, it was like, like you said, he hadn't killed for so long. It was like his downward spiral of just, yeah, like, he was going crazy, like, well, he's already crazy, basically, in a way, <laughs> but it was yeah. not doing it and just feeding off of it, because I remember, if I remember correctly, I read something, there was, was there, like, a bar or something not too far from the shorty? Yes. Where he, like, yes. He said he would hang out and stuff, so... He probably, like you said, saw people coming in and out, you know, the girls and kind of just. Yeah, it was, it was called Sherrard's was the name of the bar. And it was just not, just not far from the sorority house. And he tried during that bar time to dance with, you know, with girls and stuff. He would look over the balcony and, and actual, you know, Ken told me that no one wanted to um, dance with him because he was like in his middle thirties and they were all, you know, 2021 and they saw this old man in the bar trying to dance and everyone was very uncomfortable and the one girl who did dance with them went back to her friends and said oh my god i just like dance with a killer you know he you know that's what he reminded me of and it's ironic of course that um she would would say that so he probably just kind of was standing outside charades and walked and saw our sorority sisters and just walk in the back door, you know, without the combination lock, lock needed and just kind of followed them in. And that's how we gained entrance to the sorority. So, um, like I said, just what was the atmosphere after, you know, when you realized that he was gone and when help and stuff came along, like I could figure I like, a dark energy type thing. Too. Yeah. Yeah, I remember after the attack and he didn't come back and it was dark in our room, our room. I remember holding my face and screaming at the top of my lungs, help me. You know, I just yelled for anyone to come and I wasn't making any sound except gurgling sounds because nothing came out. My voice didn't come out of my mouth as I'm screaming and wondering why isn't anyone helping me? Um, and at toward the end, and the, the uh, reason uh, Karen and I were uh, found was she walked out of from her room, from her bed, out into the hallway, and the door was open. He never closed the door, and it was open. And some of the sorority sisters saw her and walked her back to the bedroom. That's when they turned on the light and saw, you know, her and her uh, mess and me. Um, you know, as bad as I was attacked in blood and on my bedspread. And, you know, it's little things like that that you remember. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's they called 911 and the police came and um, the paramedics. And um, when the paramedics came, you may have heard this story, um, when they came and took care of me and then took me down the wooden staircase that was in the foyer of the sorority you open the double doors and right right there was a beautiful staircase and they took me down the staircase um, on the gurney they opened the doors and i went out so cold i mean you know a january night it was freezing and they had blankets on me and i'm on the on the stretcher looking up and as i'm looking up and, and just black night you know it wasn't even stars or anything it was just a blackness i was looking into there were like four heads looking down at me and 
I couldn't make out the features. All I saw were a bunch of heads looking at me. And I remember thinking, what are they looking at? You know, it just, I wasn't registering anything. Um, and then they walked me toward the ambulance and the police lights and the fire truck lights and the ambulance lights and people were talking and radios were squawking as they're carrying me out. And I thought I was in the carnival. My mind took me somewhere that I was okay. Mm-hmm. You know, it wasn't, I wasn't scared at that point. And also there had been a police officer in our room and he stayed with me the whole time and went to the ambulance and into the hospital. And that gave me such a feeling of peace. You know, everything I hurt like hell and, but I knew he was going to protect me and I wasn't going to get attacked again. And this obviously the whole time I'm waiting for him to, you know, kill everybody and come and get me, of course, that feeling. But that walk seemed to take forever from the house to the ambulance. And I was in my little world of the, of the uh, carnival. And I was walking around. And, you know, next thing I remember was being in the ambulance and taken to the hospital. So they, I remember, if I remember correctly, because they had somebody, like, outside your hospital room and stuff. Just yes. Um, when I was when I was taken into the emergency room, um, I'm cold and re- confused, and and everything's going on. And um, they were gonna they cut off my beautiful flannel nightgown that I had put on that night, and I still had my socks on, and all these little things went through my head as I remember what's going on, and I'm scared. And there was a police officer kind of right around you know my bed. And I looked up, and there was a beautiful, I'm sorry, I see this again. There was a beautiful face looking down at me and smiling. But I looked at her, and she said, you're going to be okay, Kathy. And that was the girl that had gotten married on Saturday that I had gone to her wedding. And she was a nursing student, and she had to work the ER that night. So it's like, a piece was there, you know, was, she was there and the police officer was there and I hurt like hell, but you know, it's, it's weird how your mind goes places and feels safe. And then after that, of course, the medication and everything. And the next thing I remember was in my room, I had a single room and my parents and no one was there yet. You know, they lived in uh, Miami again at that time. And when they found out about it, they um, had to come. But there was a guard sitting out my door, standing, sitting, you know, and I couldn't see too much because they had that bandage all around my face, you know, like the movies almost mm-hmm. with uh, my eyes open. And um, I knew it was there. And I knew, you know, I knew I wasn't going to, Attacked again. As much as I didn't know what was going to happen next, that was a feeling. Um, that was a feeling that really um, was peaceful inside. And then my parents came, and my sister and brother, and everything. Um, but Bruce, a lot of this that I remember was because the police and the detectives were by my bed almost twenty-four hours a day asking me what I remembered. Who was it? Did you see all the questions, of course, that they needed to ask? Mm -hmm. And I couldn't talk and I couldn't remember anything. So um, they had two psychiatrists come into my room and they actually hypnotized me. And 
as they did my, in my communication, I'm seeing and hearing what I've just explained. And I thought I was lying because I could hear what I was saying and I didn't remember it. And that actually brought into focus exactly what happened. And that's how, over the years, I remember that. And now I can put in more pieces of the puzzle. You know, so that's, it wasn't because I was so alert and everything during the time. It was because hypnotized, it did come back to me. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it was an experience in itself. But, again, that's the only reason I think I remember as much as I do. Yeah, you like you, you know a lot of, like like you said little tiny details and just things like that like yeah oh and even still as as I talk and I close my eyes and I walk into my room and I see my gold carpet and everything that becomes clearer and clearer each time and you know talking Bruce it helps to heal me it really does people say why are you doing because it? it's for me you know um, I'm telling my story and my story heals. me because it kind of goes like an onion, it kind of peels away. And it's easy for me, easier for me to um, to get through it and understand it. Although, even obviously, sometimes it kind of gets to me because I do physically go through what I'm saying. And, you know, that makes it hard because, you know, <laughs> it just gets to me sometimes. But um, actually, I was in the hospital for about a week. And my jaw was wired shut and I was, my face was wrapped and it was time for us to go home back to Miami and my mom and dad and sister and brother and, um, and some friends, uh, one or two friends from, from home were there. And all, there were a lot of sorority sisters that literally wanted to come into the room and say hi and everything. And I didn't know it, but mama said, you know, let's wait, you know, let's give her time. Because Mama went through so much with me. I think with lupus, she just wanted us in our little cocoon to get better. Um, so the sisters, uh, Mama had said to wait, um, you know, to come in. And when I had to leave the hospital, they were taking us <clears throat> to the um, airport. But first, the cops in a unmarked, in a black, not a limousine, a black sedan stopped in front of the sorority house. They wanted me to go up into my room and see if anything was missing so that, you know, obviously they would know if they found anything with, with someone, they would put it back, you know, put it together, um, that he was there. And when I had to walk up those beautiful wooden staircase that weren't as pretty as they used to be, I just, I just, each step, an officer was on each elbow and helping me walk up each step that took forever to get to the landing. And when I turned into, to go down the hall, Margaret's room had the yellow crime scene tape. And across I saw Lisa's room with the tape and didn't, didn't mean anything. I was in my own little, you know, hell. <laughs> so they walked me to my room. They moved the tape. I walked in. And at first on the dresser, all I saw was the black dust that they leave for making fingerprints. And they said, you see anything missing? I'm like, hell if I know. You know? I, I, I don't even see what I see there, you know. And I'm like, I don't know. And my eyes follow the wall until I pass the desk and I get to my bed. And the bedspread was all caught up in a ball, all just messed up. 
And the blood that had been on it was brown because it had, it had dried in my pillow and the wall and it was just horrific. But I'm so glad that the officers took me there because I could see reality. I knew that's where it happened. Mm-hmm. I knew that's what happened and it brought, it brought me kind of a reality that I would need later on so I didn't make up what happened. You know, I didn't have to say something else happened. I had a physical in my eye, in my mind. I had that that physical look. And it's funny because when I talked to Ken Casares in December, he said, I would never have allowed them to do that if I had known. I'm like, Ken, I'm so glad they did. And he just didn't understand it that way, you know. And But that, you know, that helped me to continue healing and um as I went home to Miami um to finish healing that was that was something that I remember I didn't focus on it but I knew it happened if that makes sense it was just reality hitting me because I knew like you uh, in that story you had sent me like you mentioned about like everything that you endured that night and just like you still face you know you still have issues with it to this day Yes, um, I have a terrible scar, which I cover really well after 40 years with makeup, but it goes from my ear down to the uh, corner of my mouth where um, the, it, the, it flapped open. Mm-hmm. And actually, um, I remember when I was in the room being attended by the paramedics, I'm like, you know, what the hell happened as best as I could talk. And I remember them saying, honey, you've been shot in the face. We're going to take care of you. And in my little mind, I remember the hand being raised and being slammed down on me. And I I just don't remember. I think at that pat, point I passed out again because I don't remember anything about a gun. <laughs> you know, and now it's even worse than I thought it was in my memory. But um, so those are the injuries still today. I had bit my tongue off um, just hanging on but after um, the hospital and and being um, recuperating with my mouth uh, my teeth shut they can't fix your tongue so I remember um, it was it was painful and the only thing that I nourishment I could get at that point was through a straw and whatever would go through my my teeth and because of the attack my teeth had shifted so badly that I had a lot of gaps, you know, so I got my nourishment that way. But even to this day, Bruce, I have such bad TMJ over the years. I've had several operations um, since the attack. And on the joints, <clears throat> excuse me, of my jaw, they're padding in there. It's like a cushion that mm-hmm. the uh, joints, that wears away because... What they do is when they do these um, surgery on me again, they take muscle from my head and they use that as the cushion in my jawbone so that I'm not rubbing bone on bone. And I actually had my last surgery two years ago. Um, so it's still ongoing and it kind of really pisses me off <laughs> because I've been through this and I've worked through this in my mind and I'm okay. And then damn it, <laughs> my damn jaw, you know? So, uh, 
it's an outlook that I see and it's, it's just weird, you know, and I, I'm not afraid that, you know, Bunny's going to come again, even if he hadn't been dead or anyone else. It was, it was just pissing me off that I had to keep having surgeries and going through that pain and, and everything. So, um, that was weird, but yeah, I still have TMJ and now after two, you know, two years, I could almost feel I can't open my jaw the way. And I'm like, I don't know if they did a bad job <laughs> or what's going on, but I've already noticed that I'm having um, jaw issues, which I'll maintain until I can't even soup any, you know, soup hurts to eat. You know, I just take it as far as I can with the pain before I let myself have to go through that again. Yeah, I noticed uh, in that too, because I, I relate to you on that, where you're talking about, you know, you had a terrible fear of hospitals and stuff. Oh, I, terrible. I, I have a fear of it. Like, I've not, you know, went through anything like you have. And I've, you know, just regular checkup stuff like that when I was younger. But I just, I don't know, just something sticks with me somewhere in my life that's made me not Yeah. So I yeah. relate to that. Well, I remember living to office visits and, and then, of course, Bundy. And I couldn't, as you, I couldn't even walk through a hospital door. I would always sit outside. They had the concrete um, benches out in front of the hospitals. And if it was a baby born or someone dying, I didn't care. I just couldn't couldn't walk through. And, Bruce, I don't want anything to stop me in life, mm. you know. I wasn't going to let anything be my new normal at this point. So I went to human resources and I got a job in a hospital and I worked there 18 years and it was the best job I ever had, but I wasn't going to let that be an obstacle I couldn't overcome. And, you know, that I could walk in a hospital anytime now, you know, and it was like a dragon that was breathing um, fire on me and I wanted it to stop. So the hospital is where I got a job. And um, like I said, I loved it. It was a great, great opportunity for me to work in a hospital and and learn a new op, uh, operation of how things work and, you know. I was in material management, so um, I was responsible for everything that was bought in the hospital. It was, you know, equipment down to, you know, depressors for your tongue. So it was a great job. I loved it. But it was like after your attack and stuff, um, so I know you had mentioned that you hadn't been contacted by any of the sisters and that, like, you felt uncomfortable around, you know, men you didn't know. And so, like, yeah. So it was in that way, like just kind of a bad, well, I can understand, you know, how it affected you, but like, can you walk me through of how your life was after that for a while? Yeah, it was um, right after, I think Bunny was uh, um, caught in like middle of February or something. And um, my mouse was uh, wired in Tallahassee in the ER, but it, I went to an oral surgeon in Miami, and it had been wired incorrectly, and my jaw would have been completely off my bite. So they had to break my jaw again after three weeks of healing and um, reset it, and they put pins now in, in my joints and my joint bones. And my chin had been so shattered, they actually had to wrap wire around my chin to allow the bone to heal. So now I'm wired shut for another nine weeks to uh, to heal because of that operation. And um, it wasn't that I was so much afraid of men as people saying I should be or aren't you afraid of men. 
and I didn't have that feeling before, you know, it just, it wasn't haunting me. So, um, after I got my, my wires off my mouth and I could eat and talk, um, that's when I went to the lumber yard, um, and got a job because I wanted to see men as fast as I could, as many, I wanted to get over you know, whatever I was feeling. And that's, that's where I thought I should go. And my mom was going, no, <laughs> stay home. You know, my little Cuban mama wanting to take care of me. Um, but I worked there and, you know, I worked at cashier and, you know, I did other things in the store. And I remember there was just one creepy guy that really kind of got to me and I slid under the cash register and, you know, someone else took the sale. But, you know, other than that, I was fine, you know, it was okay, and, you know, I only worked there a couple weeks because um, that wasn't the, you know, job I wanted to have the rest of my life, so it was kind of just a stepping stone for me to go through it, you know, fight it, and what next? <laughs> I just knew there was always going to be something next, so, um, you know, even now, <laughs> it could be something next, but um, I'm ready for it, whatever it could be. Yeah, that's, that's, that's the way to look at it. And uh, mentioned uh, you had got married too after six months after the attack. Yes, um, after the attack, I had joined that little um, group, the little um, church group, mm-hmm. and there was a, a group of people in there. And there's this one guy that he and I kind of started dating, and I met him in the spring, I think, of '77. We started dating one on one. And, um, I was attacked January 78. My parents and his parents thought I needed someone to take care of me and that I needed my knight in shining armor, who was a guy I knew for maybe a year, you know, but I was, I wasn't always as strong as, you know, as I was. And I, I really went along with it in a daze because mom was so excited and planning the wedding and I hated to take away her joy if that means anything. Mm-hmm. And um so we got married six months after the attack. It lasted six years, um, because I wanted it, you know, you always want it to work and I'll do anything. Um and I had Mikey, my son, uh, who is thirty eight now. And I remember when I told mom and dad I was pregnant, mom about jumped off the roof and, oh, my God, you're killing yourself. You're not supposed to have kids because of lupus. And I'm like, oh, my God. Mom. <laughs> so it was it was a hard um, <clears throat> pregnancy because she was always freaking out on me. But, um, yeah, I got divorced when Mike was two. And I don't know, Bruce, if I would have made it through a marriage by, you know, if I had married anyone, I don't think it would have made, you know, a, a marriage because I married for the wrong reasons. I didn't know him very well. I didn't pick out my dress and I didn't do any, you know, it was just, it was just something I did at the time and I wasn't in love and it, it, it doesn't make sense, but it does because, you know, Mike was too, which I won't tell you this story, but, um, oh, if I have a baby, it'll fix the, you know, the marriage, and of course it doesn't work, (laughs) but I was, you know, so young and thinking that'll work, but Mike's 38, and when I got divorced, he was two, and it was, it was great. I was single mom for about five, six years, and, you know, it was me and Mikey, and I dated a lot, and mom would take Mike, because I don't want him to see anyone you're dating. (laughs) I mean, I talked like that, because she was just so, 
<laughs> as a Cuban, she was just so uh, animated. But um, so five years, a single mom, and, you know, that's that was life. And I was happy, and I never wanted to get married again. And, you know, that was my, as I say, my new normal was me and Mikey. Um, but one thing, right after I got married, <clears throat> I um, got a job. This was in uh, June of 78. I got a job at a bank as a teller. And um, one time there, it was at a small um, bank, and it was run by all women, just a small um, group. Uh, bank and this young guy came in. We worked in um uh area called Century Village and we were right next door to that, which means everyone who came into the bank had either blue or white hair, had a walker or a wheelchair, you know, it was just that that was our uh customer. And uh, this young guy came in one day and we're like, Oh look, he has a suit and everything and he's not doesn't have white hair. So we all just kind of looked at him and drooled, and uh, he just went to the service station to that writing area, and he left. And we're going, oh. <laughs> so a couple of days later, I'm coming after lunch, and he's in line. And we're all going, well, that's weird, you know, because he didn't talk to us before, and he didn't open an account. I came down, and I was to be the next available teller, and so he came up to my window. And when he did, he had like a leather, a little leather pouch and he unzipped it and there was a gun in it. And I don't remember what he said, if he said anything, you know, as far as you're robbing, I'm robbing you. And I remember opening and closing my uh, cash drawer thinking, well, do I give him the ones or the twenties first? They never taught us that in teller school. <laughs> you know, it's like, what do I do? And scared to death. <clears throat> and I'm looking at him facing the lobby. He's looking at me facing the drive through The head teller had called the police and said, this something's going on. We're not sure. We don't like this guy. The police drove in through the drive through And so this guy see him. He grabs his gun and he starts running out of the doors. And I'm thinking, and I was so macho, <laughs> you know, you took that, that I made him run away. You know, so I was, I felt like, you know, it was just great. And of course, um, it was the police officer and then there was a lot of, you know, identification and everything. I had to go, but it never went to trial because of the technicality. So, um, that's the way that was. But the next day, um, after the robbery, I got up, got dressed and went to work. And I figured, where's the safest place I can be today? <laughs> but a bank full of you know, cops <laughs> taking care of that. So, you know, and I stayed there another couple of years. Um, but everyone's, oh, my God, you went back? I'm like, yeah, it was safe. <laughs> yeah. So that's my little bank getting robbed story. And that was, you said, in <laughs> June of 78? So just six yes. months? So roughly six, six months, months after? Yes, I got married and robbed <laughs> in June. <laughs> what a wonderful year. I might have taken me through July, too. So I don't remember. <laughs> But that was that was interesting time. I know you mentioned, like you mentioned earlier, that you had married, you know, in '89 to your high school friend Scott. Yes, yeah, yes, it was wonderful. We never dated in it was theater. We never dated in high school. Mm -hmm. He was always the bad boy looking guy, and Mom was like, "No, you can't date him." 
so we were just best friends and everything with Susie and a bunch of other people. But um, just to back up a minute, you're right about the sorority people not calling me. I don't think I answered that oh. question for you. Um, I was in Miami. My mouth was wired shut. And um, the girls had been told in the hospital room, you know, not to bother me, not to come in and, you know, that kind of thing, let me heal. So I'm at home in Miami, and no one was contacting me. So I would go and sit in the little hospital, uh, in our little kitchen and pick up the phone. Mom would call the sorority and say, so-and-so there, you know, and, of course, they would say no. And so they'd take a message for me to be, you know, for them to call me. And the next day I did it. Mom said, and, you know, same thing is, is someone there? And, you know, they said no. So after about a couple of days of this, it, it was hurtful for me that no one ever called me back. And uh, mom and my sister were like, you know, let's chill. If they, you know, they'll call you back. They're busy, you know. And they never did. And no one, none of the girls ever called me back. And none of my family had gone to college or been through a sorority um, feeling. And I was just, you know, on the world when I joined Kayo. And, you know, these are my sisters. These are my blood. And so my family didn't really understand that. And when they didn't ever contact me, they they were just, you know, well, what do you expect? That That kind of feeling. But when Susie died... And um, a bunch of us from high school went to her her wake. Um, I remember walking in and just devastation in our hearts for our Susie. And there must have been, I don't know, 15 or 20 coyotes in that room because Susie was the coyote. And they all came to give their respects. And they came to me and they all wrapped their hands, arms around me and you know, oh, we love you and all this stuff. And I remember pushing them away and saying, you know, I needed you. Then. I needed you to tell me I was okay and I hadn't done anything wrong. And I needed encouragement from my, quote, sisters. Mm -hmm. I, I don't need you anymore. And I'm here for Susie. So, you know, just leave me alone. And, of course, I went through you know, with Susie's funeral and everything. But it's not that that made me feel empowered that I did that. It made me feel that I didn't need them anymore, and I had healed them myself. You know, so they were in my way at this point, if that makes any sense. Do, do you um, think that they kind of, like, done that more, like, kind of like to forget, you know, like to forget the incident even occurred and just kind of move on on their own terms? Like, or do you just think they'd done it for a different reason? I think when I think back about it, Mama has said, you know, leave her alone right now in the hospital. Let her, you know, let her heal. Um, and that was kind of put into the sorority house for them not to see me in the hospital. I think that carried over a bit. And um, but when you think about it, you know, they had their own lives in college, and you know, this happened, and and it, they went through what they had to for mourning and and everything, but. You know, I can understand them moving on and me, Kathy, sitting in Miami recuperating wasn't in their minds anymore. So I can kind of understand it, and yet it hurts like hell, mm -hmm. too, because they didn't contact me until I saw Susie. And, and I didn't need them. I really didn't. I needed them telling me 
in the beginning that I was okay and they loved me and everything and it wasn't necessary. So to say they're not contacting me, I think it has several reasons. And I also think the sorority felt that I was bad publicity because of my connection with Bundy and, um, and I think that had a lot to do with it as, you know, possibly they didn't want that out there. So the pledges wouldn't come to the sorority because it would have a negative, you know, connotation and everything. So it hurts like hell, but I can rationalize it. If that makes sense. Um, another thing, um, when was it, you said you were 34 when you were diagnosed with uh, stage two breast cancer. How was that after you married? Scott or yes okay. yes we had been married um a couple years and we wanted to have a baby um so i gone to the gyn and he found the lump in my breast and we didn't do anything with it at first because it like the size of a pea and actually scott is a speech pathologist but he does brains he's like a brain scientist he does all this brain mapping and he was in europe and finland for a month working with um other uh, scientists there. So when it was found, um, it was the size of a pea. When he got home a month later, it had grown to a walnut. And everyone, and he was so mad at me that I didn't call him that day and, and bring him home. And it was like, well, why? You know, he was doing something important. He was getting his PhD and this was important and I'm not going to die in a month, you know, so I didn't tell him to come home, um, actually, until he went to Russia for a weekend, <laughs> a fun time. And then I said, well, I've got something to tell you. So, um, but when he came home and it had grown so large, um, I was in the hospital. They did the biopsy and it did turn out to be cancer. And going in, we said, if it's cancer, you know, do the mastectomy. And I was like, take the arm, take the leg, <laughs> just get it out of me. You know, I don't need, you know, whatever. I just, you know, don't leave it in me. So I had a radical mastectomy and, um, that was, um, kind of a hard, <clears throat> um, recovery after that. And, um, I had a lot of issues during that recovery period and reconstruction. My, um, expansion, my expander, I don't know if you know anything about breast surgery and cancer, you know, mastectomies. I, I won't go into that, but they put a, uh, like a, um, a balloon in your, uh, under your, the breast tissue and they pump that up periodically. They put, you know, saline water in it because that stretches the skin. And because I had nothing. And then when they go to put the implant in, you know, the skin stretched. So um, that took a couple operations and then it broke. <laughs> I'm like, of course, one in 10,000 of these break. <laughs> and the doctor was like, oh, my God. <laughs> so, again, two surgeries put that in. It seemed, you know, it was just and then reconstruction and. It was a hard time, but after all that, and about a year and a half later, oh, the other thing, they put me on chemo while they were treating me with um, the breast cancer and everything. I was on chemo, and when I heard that, my mind went right back to seventh grade and that angst and that losing my hair and everything, and um I said, no, no chemo, anything but. And they're like, no, this is, you know, it's the best way to treat it. 
And um, to tell you the truth, God has a sense of humor because I pray, please, God, don't let me lose my hair again. And I lost clumps of it. <laughs> I didn't say, don't let me lose all of it, you know. So a lot of clumps, and I cut it short and everything. But um, so I had to go through that. And after um, one chemo, I had nine chemos to do. I said, no, I have one more chemo. And they're like, no, darling, <laughs> you know, be, you know, reality here, you have eight more. I said, no, I have one. Because when I go through that one, I have one more. Because if I thought of the big picture of having nine months of chemo, you know, that would have taken me over the edge. Mm-hmm. And so that's one of my mind games I think I played um, in my in my head that let me get through that time in my life because I had one chemo to go. And um, I really think it helped me doing it that way, um, teasing myself. Um but I would go in and have chemo, and I won't. I'd have probably taken too much of your time on this. But one time it was, one time it was my birthday, and I had chemo, and I worked at a hospital. And so Scott picked me up, and we went to Chick Fil A to have breakfast. I mean lunch. He gave me a wrist massage at the hospital because it was my birthday, so I had that. And by the time we got to the clinic for chemo, there were balloons and flowers around my chair. And it was beautiful. It was just beautiful. And each chemo, I think, lasted like four hours. Mm-hmm. And But I felt so sorry because as we were doing chemo over the month, there were a couple women who said that their husbands left them as soon as they heard the diagnosis for for cancer. And I felt so bad that I was such a happy place. And, and that has bothered me, Bruce, during all of this. I I have overcome a lot, a lot, and I've done it my way. And you know, I I people ask how I've done it, and you know, I have little things, you know, for encouragement. But it really matters to me that I don't sound precocious and oh, I did it. You can do it because mm-hmm. it was everything's different, and I don't want to, you know, I don't I don't want to cro- come across as I don't know even the words, but just you know, I did it. You know, I. I don't know the words, but, you know, hopefully you understand what I'm trying to say because, you know, each victim, each victim went through what they went through. And, um, I don't want to feel like their family saying, I don't know, I got better. They, you know, (laughs) I'll just say that to you because I don't know, it seemed important to say that because it really hurts, you know, that so many, so many were killed by him and, um, and I survive. I do not have survivor's guilt or whatever they say. I wanted to survive. You know, I wanted life. I wanted to keep going by doing the things I had to do. And anyway, I don't want to sound cocky or anything in any in any way when I when I talk to people. And so, about a year and a half, I'm jumping. A year and a half after uh, the surgery for breast cancer, Scott and I wanted to have a baby, and I got pregnant. And in my second trimester, I had a miscarriage. And everyone that goes through a miscarriage goes through shit and hell. But in my mind, I was saying, you know, I can, I can fix what I have to go through. I can go through it and get better. I'm sorry, but I couldn't help my baby. <laughs> I couldn't make it better. So anyway, I got through that. And about two years later, we got pregnant again and I had another miscarriage in my tri- trimester and again the guilt of my baby I couldn't 
I couldn't make it strong enough to to make it through this. And after that, I said, Scott, I'm not doing this anymore. And he agreed. And we went out and bought a sailboat. And that became our new baby. (laughs) So, you know, one thing didn't work and we got through it and, and I got away from it. And then the sailboat, we, it was, you know, it was great, but I kind of transferred my hurt and my pain to the sailboat and we love it. Michael loves it. You know, so that's, that's how I got through. Sounds terrible, but my miscarriages was to move on with, with our sailboat. Now we ride motorcycles and sail and life's wonderful. <laughs> you know, when I write down when I that list you see and the things, I'm like, holy shit. <laughs> I did all I went through all that <laughs> You know, it's like, man <laughs> there's a lot of stuff there. But um it you know yeah, I've never I'm who I am. Sorry. Huh? Like I've never well my ex-wife, like, um, we we have two kids together, a son and a daughter, and, well, her second pregnancy, she she had a miscarriage, so I, so I kind of know a little bit about miscarriage, like, it was rough on her, and then, you know, me yeah. on, on the other end of it, so I understand, it, it's, it's yeah. tough to go through. Yeah, it was, and Scott has been nothing but supportive and one thing i'll go to real quick scott had no idea i had been attacked by ted bundy (laughs) you know as best of friends and everything we were he went to he was at jacksonville university having fun you know what i mean Mm -hmm. and you know life was wonderful for him and he really didn't know too much or anything about me and being attacked by ted bundy and everything so uh we got together in 85 and that's when he got a quick learning, <laughs> quick education. And um, it was weird because, like I said, you know, and of course he'd been with me um, afterwards and, you know, the trial. and I mean, not the trial, but the uh, execution and going through that. And um, just an aside for this, just for you to know me better, um, our son Mike had no clue. Well, he he knew I had been attacked. He did not know any details mm-hmm. until that article in the Rolling Stone came out. And a friend from high school called him and said, my God, Mike, was that your mom? He goes, what are you talking about? <laughs> so he read the article and called and said, oh, my God. <laughs> he goes, I'm like, you were normal. You made cookies and, you know, you, you know we had pool parties. And I'm like, what am I going to do, Mike? Say, sit down. I got a story for you. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so it just really never came into play that um, that that happened. And he was two when we got divorced. And I remember he was falling asleep one night in his bed, and I was giving him butterfly kisses. And he saw my scar, and he touched it and said, what happened there, Mom? And I said, well, a bad man had come into our house. And that's why, Mike, you and I go to the doors and make sure they're locked and go to the windows. He used to walk around with me to check everything. And his little big boy voice, he said, Mom, I'm not going to let anyone hit your face again. And it was just, you know, kids say the darndest things. But to hear that, I know at two years old, he was going to be my protector. And, you know, it was it was amazing to me and like i said kids say the darndest things but um you know to hear that and have that peace again that he was going to take care of me and i didn't need anyone to take care of me but he was going to do it and 
you know, things that happen in life. And, you know, there's, I've, (laughs) I've had a great life and I look forward to the rest of it. (laughs) You know, it's like, it's just like, you know, none of, I'm a victim, but I'm victorious over all this because damn, if I'm going to sit in a corner or hide in a box, you know, I, I'm, that's not me. And it doesn't have to be other people. You know, they choose to be that way, but, Mm-hmm. If they want to, they can get out of that box. As far as I feel, yeah, that, that's the same. That's the same way. I, you know, I can look at things like, you know, like we said earlier, like everybody does go through different things and they handle it different. But it's it's good to kind of, in a way, accept it and move on. And like, yeah, in a way, not let it define your life. Like become the person you were meant to be. Stuff like that. And like you did, you know, you went and like you said, you love your life. You know, you went through a lot and. You, you know, you're still going. So yeah, yeah. And it, you know, in the beginning when I was first attacked and I realized Bundy was on his journey to kill as many girls and women as he could. And his journey was I wasn't going to stay on his journey. I made it my journey then. Mm-hmm. I wanted to go on my journey and make it better. I wasn't going to be on his anymore. And that strengthened me to know that I got off his path and made my own. And, um, you know, that helped disconnect me. You know, I have my little things in my head that, that I used to do. And I thought, you know, his, his journey of, you know, mayhem and killing and everything was going to be my journey of getting better and enjoying life. And I remember thinking that and using it as um, something that would help me get along through the years. Um, one thing uh, I remember reading during the trial, or you might it might have been on a documentary. It's been a while back. Yeah. But you mentioned during the trial when you you know told your story and all that, like about you just basically stared him down. Um, yeah (laughs) sometimes I don't know what I'm doing you know no it was my day for testimony and during the trial it was in Miami uh, and we lived there but they didn't let us sit in you know in the gallery during testimony because they wanted us to say our story only and not be influenced so there was a room um a conference room that we go in the day of testimony and there was the cops there there were the paramedics there you know and this has been a year the the trial started about a year after um attack and to see all them and to hug them and it was it was enlightening so it's my turn now to go and testify and the bailiff came and got me and we walked and there's a little room in the courtroom um the wall, uh, judge sits at his bench and behind that in the courthouse was a little room. And I remember being put in there until it was my turn to testify. And that really, I mean, you sit there in a room by yourself and go, but what am I going to say? You know, and all this. So I walked out and I wanted to get a lay of the land. And then look, the jury were sitting there in the jury box. And they were all looking at me and, you know, staring at me intently. And I'm, okay, I can do this. And then my eyes followed a little bit more around the room. And there was a prosecution table. And, you know, um, uh, Larry Simpson was there. And people I had known, you know, during the time. And then I followed. And the gallery was full. I mean, it was like standing room only. 
And then I followed my eyes around, and there was the table and the attorneys. Kind of looked around, and Ted Bundy was sitting there. And I don't know if you've seen that iconic way he sits with his elbow on the table and his chin in his hands. He was doing that. And when I saw him, my eyes didn't come off him. I just, I just looked at him and I don't know really what was going through my head other than you son of a bitch. <laughs> you know, I, I closed my eyes and you did shit to me and I'm not closing my eyes and you're not going to hurt me again. And at that point, I have no idea what the prosecution asked me as questions, you know. I just, you know, automatically answered what they asked. And then it was the defense turn for the attorney to talk to me. And it was not Ted. He did not ask me questions. And I remember just a couple questions. And then it was, is this the man you saw in your room that night that attacked you? But I had, I had to say, I don't know. Because I never physically saw him enough to identify him. And it upset me so much because I wanted to help convict him mm-hmm. and put a nail. And I couldn't because I couldn't because I really didn't see him. And that hurt that I, that hurt me a lot and emotionally. So I was done and they took me back into that little room and I about threw up. <laughs> I remember I was like, oh my God. You know, I was stoic and strong on the in the box, but when I got off it was just you know, I was just oh couldn't stand it. But you know, I just stared at him and I think the whole time is you son of a bitch <laughs> you know, you're on that side and I'm on this side of the bed this time. So um that was that was my feelings during the trial. Um, when he was executed, like, did you personally feel that, like, justice has been served to everybody and, you know, that's connected to the case? Yes. Um, I remember it was January in 89, and Scott and I were, we had moved to Boca, he and I, and Mikey was with my parents because we didn't know what to expect. Um, so I got a call first thing in the uh, morning that said, today's execution day, and it used to kill me because he got so many stays of execution. Mm-hmm. You know, it was like, it just pissed me off because, you know, the judges would give him a stay and let him appeal. And I'm like, okay, judge, you're doing this. If you have a daughter and you think he needs another stay, let him take your daughter. You know, let him take you out to take her out to dinner. And that used to just hit me hard that they were doing this and that he was obviously guilty and everything. So it drug on. As it drug on, I thought of the girls and Margaret and Lisa and how he took everyone's life away and he killed them, but he was still breathing. So toward the uh, midnight, they, um, the district attorney called and said, okay, no more stays. It's going to happen. And then a couple hours later, he kind of caught us up to date what was happening. And then once he was executed, um, we knew. He called and let us know before, you know, it's all that hullabaloo on TV. And I, and I sat, Scott held me, and I cried in my little living room on this open. And I cried and I wailed. And I think, you're right, it was for justice. And also it was sadness that all these women were dead. You know, Margaret and Lisa, they never had stays of exit. You know, they never got to a continued life. And that pissed me off 
a lot during during that point. So after a while, after crying, Scott, you know, I composed myself, and Scott looked at me, and I said, I'm hungry. Let's go to breakfast. And that was it. And he's been out of my life until, you know, during this time in interviews. And like I said, I don't mind interviewing because it helps heal me. But that was, you know, I went to breakfast. I think uh, the next day we bought a car. And, you know, it's like, you know, he's out of my system now. I got him out of my system. And, you know, that's what it was. And, um, again, the hurt for the girls. So many of them. Yeah, it's crazy how, like... I've written, I've written to different, you know, killers and stuff, and it's crazy how a lot of them just die of natural causes. Like, you know, they get on death row and they sit there forever going through appeals and everything. It's like, yeah, a lot of people's like, you know, it shouldn't take that long. But like I said, some of them die of old age. Yeah. They've been on death row yeah. for 30, 40 years. It's yeah. crazy. You know, the death penalty was, we thought it was, you know, much better, of course, than uh, life in prison. And uh, we knew there was going to be a finite time when this would stop what he did and he never was going to get out again. And I don't know, it wasn't, it's hard to explain. It wasn't a peace or anything. It felt like justice. Like you said, it's like I, my parents were invited to go. I was, you know, we, none of us went. <laughs> I remember my mom used to say, give me five minutes with him in my high heels. That's all I need. <laughs> This little Cuban had a, you know, had a um, little mean streak in her. But, you know, it's, it's, that's what happened. And, you know, my life has been so good since then. That didn't define me. You know, it's just, we keep going. I noticed you mentioned another traumatic event that, you know, affected with uh, Hurricane Katrina. Like, that's just <laughs> crazy to have to. <laughs> Uh, isn't that cool? <laughs> um, we moved here in May of '04 into New Orleans, and Katrina hit in August of '05. And we live in a little shotgun in New Orleans. I don't know if you're familiar with that style of of house. It's our house is about maybe a thousand, no, nine hundred square feet, and we have three rooms literally. And a shotgun means that you can open the front door and shoot a bullet and it goes out the back door <laughs> it's a shotgun it just goes straight through so um our house is little and um i'm sitting right now it's it's the dining room living room family room kitchen all in one little area <laughs> and um so hurricane katrina was coming and we were going to stay here we live near the river and the river is higher ground than the rest of New Orleans, which is like a toilet, a toilet bowl. Mm-hmm. So where the uh, flooding and so much devastation was away from us. But when it was coming and it was a, a you know category five at that point, um, Scott and I and our three dogs, a six-month Doberman, a 10-year Yorkie, and then we had a Rottweiler that was like seven. <laughs> we get in our ragtop Jeep and, you know, we get in the traffic with 500,000 of our best friends. And, you know, it was just horrible. It took forever. And we went west to my sister who lived in Texas. And, you know, we went to like three different states. We did not get home until the middle of October. They did not open up our area. Our, you know, 
it was just horrendous. But we we needed to come home. You know, we were staying in a Motel 8 and, you know, three dogs until the dog realized how she could open the, you know, the door. One of those little doors with a handle on it that slides. And she, oh, okay. We went to dinner, got in the car. It's like, look, all three dogs are running down to us. So, um Anyway, so they figured it out. We were in a motel, and it was just like we had to get home. We literally moved the bob wire off our street, and we have a little side yard. We pulled the Jeep in, and we uh, we stayed in. No air conditioning, no nothing, nothing here. And it was so sad because that had gone through the convention center and lived through that hell, and it's these, and they had machine guns at the top, and it was scary. And knowing bits and bits and pieces what had gone on, we lost a lot of friends. And when we went through that, we we there was a guy actually next to us that stayed. He had a two-story house, and he was on the second floor, and he slept with his head in the in the uh, sorry refrigerator. Because so much, so much was happening in our little neighborhood. You know, gunshots and robberies and he got really messed up and, um, he would try to walk and patrol the neighborhood and, and the army little men caught him and put their, put him down on the cement with their boot on his face and said, you know, are you good or bad? <laughs> You're carrying a gun. You're leaving now, you know, and that's really messed him up even to this day. And um, he said, no, we never got robbed because he was on the second floor with a gun. And another guy was on the third floor and the other side of us with a gun. And whenever they saw people near our house, they go, I don't think so, too. And he said, you know, you little six-foot fence. <laughs> they go right over that in one leap. So we were very fortunate, but almost everybody on our block got robbed. And... um it was just, it was just scary and coming home and, and he actually was in Baton Rouge, which didn't get hurt as bad. And the LSU professors and whatever students came back, they lived on Finnish cruise, cruise ships. You know, a huge one. He had a little cabin with TV and air conditioning and they served food. I'm here, no air conditioning, hiding from <laughs> the little army and I, you know, with three dogs and, um, it was hell. And he'd come home on the weekends and then he'd leave to his little apartment on the boat. <laughs> but this lasted until May, from October until May when we finally got our electricity going. And our gas put back on. And, you know, as, as the weeks and the months got a little less uh, crazy here, um, we'd hear the, I would hear the Red Cross and their big truck going by. It's almost like an ice cream shop. And I'd hear that go by and I'd run out and they might give us, you know, a wrapped hot dog and a Coke. And I'd grab it and I'd sit on the curb right in front of them and eat it. And go, oh, this is so good. <laughs> it was like things like that that my mind goes through. And then people who died and people who lost everything. Even now, um, I worked at an art gallery before the pandemic. And people would come through buying art. And they said, we have to replace everything because we lost everything. And photos. And you still hear, you know, 10 years later, 12, you know. And it's right in front of everyone's face still. And um, we um, we knew when people on our block came home because their refrigerator would be out by the street. 
And ours went out by the street because there's just no way you're going to clean our refrigerator mm-hmm. after that many months and everything. So we like, oh, look, Joe's back. There's his refrigerator. <laughs> so um, that's how the neighborhood got back together. Is we knew who was home by that. But, um, yeah, that's an experience I uh, I never want to go to in through. In Fort Lauderdale, you have a hurricane. The next day, you go outside and clean up. You know, and this was just so mind-boggling. You have it in August. You can't come home until um, October. It just, it was hard to handle. That was kind of a little something to go through. It wasn't as hard as some of the other things, but mentally it was, it hurt. It hurt a lot. Yeah, it wears on you. I know, like, well, I'm a football fan and stuff. I know, like, when New Orleans won the Super Bowl, you know, it kind of uh, brought a lot of people back in that area all, you know. Yeah, yeah, it was great. We live maybe about 15 blocks from the quarter, and we have little scooters, and we just scoot down and, you know, park on the sidewalk anywhere we want. We were on Bourbon Street, and there was nothing but loves and hugs. It was it was monumental. It was <laughs> Um Anyway, it was joyful, and it was like the city needed that so bad. You know, and it was like everyone was hugging, and you never get that in the quarter. Usually, you know, you get shot. <laughs> Not really, but, um, you know, it was a wonderful time, and it kind of added to, okay, things are going to get better now. Yeah, I couldn't imagine going through. I've, I live, you know, in West Virginia, and we don't have hurricanes. I, I could not imagine <laughs> going through because, like, we'll, we'll have, like, a, a tornado or something here and there. Yeah. It's oh. hilly. It just, like, it don't last as long and stuff so we, uh, most of our things are like when like we did have a bad windstorm years ago it knocked out like the whole state's power but it, yeah it was, i think my power was out for like nine days you know it still uh, isn't much but yeah no <laughs> two days is bad <laughs> yeah but not to have any i it, you know it's so just it's so uncomfortable you're used to so many you know, things that uh, make you comfortable, and then when you don't have that, mm-hmm. but like nine days, you know, that's that's a lot to go through, and hot, I bet, and, you know, just, ugh. Yeah, luckily, I, uh, hit, I had a friend I could stay with that actually wasn't that far from where I work, and he had power, uh-huh. so I was able to stay there and, you know, and have food and, you know, be air-conditioned. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> I had a friend. I had a... <laughs> All right, rub it in. No, that's good. That's good. You had, you know, that had you had that and didn't have to suffer like anyone else. But um, you know, it's something else. Everyone has their stories, as you do. And when I hear people's stories, it just breaks my heart. So many stories are out there. I don't see how they can overcome or how it's weird because it's like my heart breaks for them because their stories are so much worse than my little stuff you know when you hear it it's just it's empowering to hear you know people can go through things and then when they can't go through things it's it's hurtful and i just want to pick them up and hold them in my arms and bring them out of their box and you know, obviously I can't do that, but that's, I guess, the mother in me <laughs> that wants to do that. Um, before we go, is there anything, any other, like, last things you want to say? Um, you know, <clears throat> Bundy had no remorse, no soul. So he was just bigger than life to himself <clears throat> because of the media and the attention and everything. But when we were attacked and when anyone goes through anything, 
I think it's important for them to know that that if they have a goal to move to or something they want to do, nothing big, nothing big for a woman or anything. It took a lot of recuperation and, and everything. I never saw a therapist because mom's like, oh, yeah, she's Cuban. You don't go to therapists. <laughs> Who does that? <clears throat> so um, in my mind, after after the attack, I had this, it was like a, a monkey on my back, but it was just black, just, just horror, just, I can't explain it. It was, it was on my back. It encompassed me. And of course, um, I didn't want that. And I had something I wanted to go to. I had a goal in my mind. And I don't know if you've heard me say this, but it was a little island and it was, it was pretty far away, but I could see it with one palm tree and one little um, sand chair, short chair. And I wanted to get to that so bad that I would take baby steps. And it would take me so long to take several baby steps. And as I did, I looked behind me, and that blackness, that scary thing wasn't on me. It was a couple steps behind me. And... As I walked so slowly in baby steps to get mentally through this, by the time I reached my island and I sat in my chair with my feet in the sand, I looked and it was nowhere. It had gone. I was, I was going to get better now because that wasn't going to be who I was. I wasn't going to live with that. And I think if people... It can have something, a goal, you know, if it's to go shopping or whatever it is. I think they need something. Um, it helps. Let me put it that way. It helped me to have something to walk toward and kind of to walk away from um, from what they're going through. And people say I'm strong or a hero or something, and that's so not me. I'm strong, and anyone can be strong because we all have strength. Our strength is inside of us, mm-hmm. deep down. And if we look down deep in our soul and we find that and we pull it up and we're holding our strength now, that's ours and no one can take that away. Yep, if we can use that, we can get through things because it's ours. And strength is what, what you need to get through a lot of things. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry, that sounded sappy. <laughs> it's all good, yeah. Like I said, you you are an inspiring woman, and like you said, you're a strong, strong woman. And, you know, you overcame so much in your life, and you're still moving forward. Like, even when you said you took baby steps to get to the yeah. island, it's still progress. Baby steps are still progress. Yeah. No matter if you take you 10 days to walk a foot you're still making progress exactly exactly and and it felt so good when i reached when i reached that chair and i remember my my feet and my toes in the sand and well i did it you know i i made it i did this so and i always said on my whole life before as at, before things each happen, that you got to run through life because you know, you never know what obstacle is going to be in front of you and you got to be ready to jump it over. And I'm 62 now and I wonder the obstacle because there's always going to be something better in, in front of you. Mm-hmm. And that's just kind of how, you know, I want to keep going is 
there's something better in front of that obstacle. You just got to get around it. <laughs> I used to run. Now I walk really fast. <laughs> I've been I've been a good runner for about like I used to run when I was younger, but I've been getting back into it. But about four cool. years I've been. Well, my knees have been shot since I was little, but I still I still uh, out there and do it. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. I have my Roddy now, who's three, and I put my mask out and then walk around the neighborhood. It's really quiet neighborhood. And so that's my running now. <laughs> Mocking, but in my mind, I'm running. <laughs> I think everyone runs when they're young. You know, when I was meeting Scott up again and, and, you know, I used to go around the neighborhood running and go to the course. And then it's like, <laughs> why did you, <laughs> you stop doing it? It's almost like, why did I used to do that? <laughs> but it felt good at the time. So you know, it gave you that fat, that flat stomach and those, you know, those meat calves. <laughs> so it made it, I guess. It's, it's good mentally, too, I think. Yes. Yes. Uh, I guess I'll wrap this up. I thank you a whole lot for uh, coming on and, you know, talking with me and stuff. And, you know, I appreciate it. And I've learned a lot from you. Like, I love hearing your stories. And very, very nice to get to know you a little bit more. Because I know a lot of things I've seen, it's not very long. And it kind, yeah. of, it kind of focuses more on you know, the the attack and everything, and, you know, yeah. it's good hearing your actual other stuff that's happened in your life, the good or the bad, you know, I've learned more about you as a person. Well, thank you, and, and I appreciate you really do you asking to talk to me. I don't know, I get, I'm so happy when someone asks to talk to me, it's like really cool, they you really want to hear about me, you know, I'm so humbled, and I just appreciate, I appreciate it very much. Yeah, thank you, and uh, I guess I'll hope you enjoy the rest of your day. I'm going to go back and try to find something to do for a little bit. <laughs> you know, as you edit or whatever this, make sure you take some of that uh, sappy stuff. You know, I want to be strong stuff. <laughs> if you can't. Your whole story's good. Like I said, I, I'll, I'll edit through it a little bit. Yeah. I, I like the, your whole story that you gave me. I really, really appreciate it. I think it'll, it'll connect more with people, I think, and really listen in. Uh, and, and I I don't do this to really help someone. It's if I can give them suggestions, mm -hmm. you know, or something like that. And actually, after so much more that, you know, that doesn't define me. Mm -hmm. And um, it's just, you know, I don't want to say sappy. Life's great. <laughs> but it's a good place. And since I still have the lupus and, you know, it's still, uh, it's pretty dormant. My husband doesn't let me get out much. <laughs> so uh, if I get to go with him in the car to get gas, it's like, woo, I'm out of the house. <laughs> or I have to wear two masks if I go anywhere, you know. So he's so protective of me, which is wonderful. We've been married 31 years. And uh, we've been together, I think we figured out 36 years with high school and everything. So. I didn't think I'd like I'd like anyone after six months. <laughs> you know, it was like, whoa, this is getting kind of long there. <laughs> but um, it's just it's just thank I thank you very much for inviting me to talk to you. <laughs> <laughs>